Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show where you will learn about being purposeful, how to apply yourself to what matters most. My guest today is Vic Streaker. This episode is part of the Positive Business Conference series recorded at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self others, and society for the greater global good. To learn more, please visit PositiveBusinessConference.com. Let's get started with my conversation with Vic Streaker. My guest today is Dr. Vic Strecker, and he's been a professor at the UM School of Public Health since 1995. He founded the Center for Health Communications Research. Currently, as Director for Innovation and Social Entrepreneurship, Vic is helping the University of Michigan disseminate research to the real world, improving the public's health nationally and globally. We're also talking about his book, Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most changes everything. And he's at the Positive Business Conference talking about well-being and our world. And here we go. Hi, Vic. Hi, how are you? I am excellent and really excited to talk with you. Me too. Let's define purpose. Okay. I think that purpose is creating a goal or set of goals around the things that matter most to you in your life. And I want to distinguish that from another word, purposeful. So purposeful, I like a little more because that's active. You know, we can ask people, do you have a purpose in your life? And that's good. It's good to have yeah. a purpose in your life. We can ask about the strength of their purpose. But when we start asking, are you purposeful? Then we're starting to get at, in my mind, applying your best self to the things that matter most. Yeah, and it's as simple as that. And you can ask the question, are you living and leading a purposeful life. That's a verb. Isn't that great? Yes. So, you know, Stephen Fry used to, you know, he, the comedian and actor said, you know, my life is a verb. It's not a noun. Yeah. I write. I'm not a writer. I act. I'm not an actor. I'm purposeful. I live purposefully. That's a verb. Living your life like a verb, to me, makes a lot more sense. Agreed. And But so many people have a very difficult time identifying their purpose, and that leads to depression, anxiety, withdrawal from community. Increase of risk of Alzheimer's disease at yes. retirement, for example. Higher risk of stroke, higher risk of heart attacks, much higher risk of depression, as you said. Lower resilience to stressful events that happen. We've been studying people with a strong purpose versus people with a weaker purpose now for over eight years. And we find that people who are more purposeful, first of all, live longer. There are four studies of that now. Their DNA actually wow. becomes repaired better. That's amazing. They have more antibodies produced uh, to fight disease. They have fewer pro-inflammatory cells produced, which causes disease. People who are more purposeful. I'll go back to the Alzheimer's case. Imagine at retirement. I can't. <laughs> yeah, I can't Can you? No, I'm 63 and yeah, I'm still thinking, yeah. I can't imagine retiring. But no. my dad retired at 60. And, you know, like many people, he thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have fun now. I'm going to golf. And then after about five days, he realized he sucked at golf. You know, so then he starts watching the golf channel. And I won't pick on him. But, you know, there are many people who have, you know, that kind of idea. I'm just going to now have fun. And then they realize, wow, okay, I'm kind of tired of just having fun. Yeah. Just tired of that pure hedonic cycle that I get into. And then they're going, well, wait a second. 
I need some more meaning back in my life a little bit. Those people then start watching TV, maybe, you know, eating too much, maybe drinking too much, maybe becoming overweight, becoming diabetics, and then gradually they, they die. But what's amazing, the Rush Alzheimer's Center pioneered this study with a, a woman named Patricia Boyle. She's a researcher there. And she looked at people who had just retired, hundreds and hundreds of people who had recently retired, who had a strong purpose in their life, were repurposing their life versus people who kind of lost their purpose and then followed them for seven years. Seven years later, she found that the people with a strong purpose were 2.4 times less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. Well, there's the next book, Repurposing Life. For yeah, you. <laughs> no, exactly. And in fact, we work a lot with the AARP and because they're super interested in this. They yeah. have a whole Aging Strong initiative. And the company that I founded called Kumanu is working very closely with the AARP to build programs for seniors to repurpose their life and to strengthen that purpose in retirement. Because there's all sorts of things you can do to build new purpose in your life. That makes sense? It makes perfect sense. And when you speak about sort of the hedonic pleasures and, yeah. you know, the hedonic happiness yeah. that comes from the stuff or the sensual pleasures, but purpose falls into eudaimonia, right? Let's go back to Socrates for a second. Yes, let's. So, yeah, 2,400 years ago, yeah. Socrates essentially was like a street philosopher. You know, imagine him out on the street and you might actually take a beeline around him because he's, you know, squawking away. and He's, he's rapping. That's, yeah, he's rapping. And there are other people kind of hanging with him, like Plato, <laughs> you know, for example. It's amazing. And maybe Plato will ask him a tough question and he'll go back into an alley saying, I'm going to consult my inner daemon. Well, what's the daemon? Well, that's Greek for true self or godlike self. And Greeks believe that we all have that godlike self inside us, just like Hindus yes. believe we have that god, or Buddhists believe we have that godlike self. They would call it the Atman. And the Atman inside us is that godlike self that we're born with that we kind of screw up later on in life. So it's very interesting, by the way, I'll, I'll get off on that maybe later, but imagine Socrates going back and consulting his true self, his godlike self, and then coming out going, I've spoken to my daemon and uh, I, I, I know the answer now. So that was called eudaimonia, with daemon being that root term inside eudaimonia. So that we might consider a transcending, self-transcending being inside us that gives us this transcending purpose, as opposed to hedonia, where we're interested in pleasure. And Aristotle basically said, it's okay. We all have hedonic interests. We love good food, good wine, good sex. We love all those things, yes. and that's fine. But Aristotle said in his Nicomachean Ethics, if that's all we are, then we are like, quote, grazing animals. Mm. And so he said, really being a full-fledged, full-bodied human being is having a good mix of hedonia where we love pleasure and enjoy things that are nice. Yes. That's fine. But we also have this eudaimonia. We have this self-transcending purpose inside us that's trying to do things bigger than ourselves. And it's that, it's that eudaimonia that contributes to more antibody production. People who are just purely or mainly hedonic, they actually have more pro-inflammatory cells produced, which causes everything from cancer to heart disease, lots of other problems. Whereas eudaimonic people have these, you know, more um, antibodies and fewer pro-inflammatory cells, which mm. is amazing. That is amazing. You have to go back and say, how did that happen, right? Or how did they know? Oh. Right, even like, how, did, how did they know that this is the way? Oh, well, here's the interesting part. Uh, like people when asked, Barbara Fredrickson did this amazing work in this. I don't know if you've interviewed her. I haven't, but I know her work. Mine. Yeah. So she did this amazing work just asking people, first of all, are you happy? And all these people, you know, they might be happy, they might not be happy. But that, if you were happier, if you had stronger eudaimonic well-being, you were happier. If you had stronger hedonic well-being, you were happier. You could not tell phenotypically, just on the face of the score you had, like how happy are you, whether you're eudaimonically happy or hedonic well or hedonically well. The difference was physiological. The physiological differences were 180 degrees apart. So the eudaimonically, transcendingly uh, well people were just much healthier. Yeah. Um, physically and emotionally. And I would say it's more sustainable. 
the hedonia is not as sustainable. It's kind of hard to continue to yeah. be happy hedonically. We, I guess we all know Well, we that. need more. Yeah, that what happens right. with, with, with hedonic happiness Remember is... Key Largo? Remember the movie Key Largo with Humphrey Bogart in it? And you had, you know, Edward G. Robinson. He played the mobster in it. And the mobster was holding up all these people in this place, you know, in this home right on, on the ocean. And, and, you know, this gigantic hurricane is coming in. And, uh, and the mobster, Edward G. Robinson, is getting more nervous. And, and finally... Humphrey Bogart, kind of the hero in the movie, is asking, so what do you want? And he goes, I don't know what I want. And he finally, and Bogart then finally says, I know what you want. You want more. You mm. just want more. And then Edward G. Robinson, the mobster, goes, yeah, that's right. I want more. I want, <laughs> want more. You're that's very right. good at that. <laughs> and it was so great. It kind of epitomized, you know, what that type of person is like. And they're scared of things, they're, they're hoarding things, they're afraid of other people invading our country or invading whatever. It's a lot of that. Yeah, so I, I think they're amygdalas, you know, this part of our brain that we study a lot in our laboratory and with my colleagues, but that part of the brain, which is very ancient, it's a reptilian part of our brain because reptiles have it, but it relates to fear and aggression. And that part just is so overactive in yeah. those kind of people because they're afraid of things. Well, they're bowls with holes. I mean, we as humans in general, we are bowls with holes, right? So <laughs> imagine a bowl as a vessel, uh, right? And, and we're, try, we're constantly trying to yeah. fill up the bowl and that yeah. there's this tiny little hole at the bottom so it never really gets to the top. Yeah. I want more. I want more. Yeah. We're going to pause for that break, and we'll be right back and continue the conversation with Vic Streaker. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we are back talking with Vic Streaker. This episode was recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self, others, and society for the greater good. To learn more, please visit PositiveBusinessConference.com. I'm talking with Vic about what it means to be purposeful, how when we apply ourselves to what matters most, we succeed. Let's return to that conversation. And the point of purpose is maybe that is what fills that space. When we find that purpose, those things that make us feel most alive and in rapture when we do them. Here's the other thing we found recently with my colleague, Yuna Kang, who's a postdoc researcher at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. We put people in an MRI who were really purposeful versus people who were not. We found that a part of the brain related to conflict got much less activation in the purposeful people. In other words, when we're purposeless, when we don't have a strong purpose, we're conflicted by everything. Should we have that drink at the end of the day or play with our kids? Should we, you know, whatever. We're just always conflicted. Should mm. I get this or should I get that? Um, whereas if we have a strong purpose, we tend to know a little bit more about what to do. The road is clearer for us. And so part of purpose is removing all the detritus that causes conflict in our life. And, you know, Buddhists often talk about focus and I really believe that a big part of that focus means you're removing, even focus in meditation is usually focusing on a mantra, focusing on, you know, a sound the, or the something. Breath. <laughs> yeah, on your breath. But that idea then, even though you go back to other things all the time, you tend to return to that and that practice builds a muscle in a way in, in your brain that helps you focus more by removing the Kim Kardashians of the world. And, you know, I have nothing against the Kim Kardashian, you know, herself. I don't even know her. But the idea of all the reality television, but all, all the crap that we have in our lives is continuing to distract us increasingly. Whereas having a purpose helps you focus your attention on what matters most. And so that's why I say being purposeful is applying your best self. Yeah. to the things that matter most. Being inner reference as opposed to outer reference in the sense that, you, that yeah. you're not looking for social comparison right. to, 
to identify your worthiness. Why do I care what sneakers Kanye West is wearing? You know, I don't. No. No. And it's not going to change my happiness, even if I did care. It's not going to change my fulfillment of my mission in life. Right. If I have the sneakers or not. Now, if we're talking about some stilettos, that may be different. There, there but you go. the uh, Jimmy Choo's. Yeah, yeah, the Jimmy Choo's. Right, but right, you know, but that's that's, that's that's off limits in another discussion. But if I wear the Jimmy Choo's and I don't have purpose, I'm going to be pretty miserable and empty. Right. You know, <laughs> Aristotle said it's okay to you know have the Jimmy Choo's. Just don't love the Jimmy Choo's. You know, the Jimmy yeah. Choo's are awesome for a lot of things, but but love the self-transcending parts of your life. That's like what drives a real fulfilled human being, and that's what creates happiness. So this constant search we have for happiness, what makes us happy, is like really the the most wrong question a person could ask. It's just the wrong question. Well, it's the rabbit hole. Yeah. Asking the question is an invitation to go down the rabbit hole, yeah. but asking somebody to identify their purpose is actually opening the portal. I think so. And in working with leaders and in with companies yeah. and in, in this living laboratory of a university that you have where you have these young, brilliant minds coming through here that you're hoping to ignite their purpose. Yeah. What is that like? You know, eight years ago, um, well, nine years ago, it was in 2010 that my 19-year-old daughter suddenly passed away. And she was uh, one of the early heart transplant recipients when she was 14 months old. She caught a virus mm -hmm. out of the blue. She was born healthy and she caught a chickenpox virus that attacked her heart. And she became one of the first children to get a new heart. And when she was 19, she wanted to give back and she was in nursing school at the University of Michigan. And she was, you know, tired and we took her down to the Caribbean with her older sister just to like warm up. Yeah. You know, it's cold up here in the spring, early spring. And so uh, the third night in, we, um, we were walking on the beach and she went back to her room and she turned to us and she said, I'm so happy now that I could die. And those were her last words. Anyway, I'm, I guess I'm telling that story because I went through a period of, uh, you know, of course, grief. And uh, I started thinking, I, I, I found myself out in Lake Michigan, two miles out on a kayak at 5.15 in the morning by myself with nobody at the cabin I was in. And I was actually considering just continuing to paddle out to Wisconsin, which was 88 more miles, which is not a smart idea. And... I felt my daughter suddenly in me. I don't know how the sun was rising. I felt my daughter in me. I describe this in my book, but, um, and I felt her saying, dad, you have to get over this. And I wasn't like, wow. you have to get over this dad. It was like, you have to get over yourself. And I came back and I was, uh, you know, the university was so nice. They said, you don't have to, uh, teach this next semester. You don't have to teach for the whole year. You just lost your daughter. It's such a hard thing to imagine for them. And I still couldn't imagine that I was going through this. And everybody kept saying things like that, which allowed me to drink way too much, to eat way too much, to, you know, to just completely indulge myself and, and then not stop caring about anything. And no one bothered me about that. Certainly no one was going to approach me and say, you need to like change your life, except my yeah. daughter did, who was dead. Yeah. And she did it on Father's Day, oddly enough. I didn't even know it was Father's Day. I'd been up there a few weeks by myself in northern Michigan. And I found myself out in Lake Michigan. I pedaled back and I said, I need to repurpose my life. And so one of the parts of my purpose, I said, I'm going to teach every one of my students as if they're Julia my daughter. And so I called the university literally that morning still. And I said, yeah. I'm going to teach. I want to go back and teach again, but I'm going to do it in a new way that I've never done before. And so every one of my students now is my daughter and they're all 19, which is yeah. wild. <laughs> so cool. And so when I teach my, my students, I realize that they have needs other than just getting a decent grade in my class. They have a lot of concerns in their lives. Where am I going to go? Do I have a purpose now? Will I find a job that's fulfilling? I'm not sure. My parents gave me this resume for my life. Um, and I say, tear it up. Yeah. It's your life now. So, and I found myself with a lot of students then in my office hours, not saying like, how do I get a better grade, but how do I have a better life? And... 
I started loving my life more and my job more because I was teaching my students as if they were Julia. Yeah. And so that amount of job crafting, you know, kind of saying, I'm not just a teacher for students, I'm a teacher for people, and I'm a life coach for people in a way, hopefully. And not for everybody, and I'm not good at this necessarily for everybody, I do my best. But then I started saying, wow, I have to take better care of myself to do yeah. this, because I now have 200 daughters. And they all want to see me now. So many want to talk to me. They want recommendations to med school or grad school or whatever. Um, or they have problems. Like I drink too much and I'm worried about that. Or I'm watching, you know, pornography too much on the Internet. Or I'm uh, even thinking about killing myself. Uh-huh. And we've seen, by the way, in the last 10 years, a doubling in suicidal ideation among college students around the country. A doubling. And the students with a low purpose in their life are almost 10 times more likely to have suicidal ideation than the students who have a higher purpose. So I treat this very seriously. I treat my work the way I might treat my family. And I care a great deal about my students. I see them. If I don't have time to see them, I see them at my home. I see them out having a coffee. I spend a lot of time because that's what matters most. And I want to bring my best self not a tired self, yeah. not an ornery or angry or conflicted self, not an overwrought self, my best self to the things that matter most. Here comes a brief pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. back, continuing my conversation with Vic Streaker that was originally recorded at the Positive Business Conference at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, where industry leaders gather to promote greater well-being and performance through connection with self, others, and society for the greater global good. To learn more about PBC, please visit PositiveBusinessConference.com. Let's return to my discussion with Vic. Going back to the students that you work with. I just want to touch upon suicidal ideation and suicide in general and loneliness. Depression, loneliness. Yes. Yeah, we have seen, and this is through an amazing survey that's been conducted called the Healthy Minds Survey of over 180 colleges and universities around the country and over 200,000 college students. And they have found, indeed, a doubling of depression over the last 10 years, significantly greater loneliness. And... A loss of flourishing, what a guy named Ed Diener calls flourishing, which includes purpose in your life and general well-being metrics. Those things have really been cut significantly in the last 10 years. So you have to ask, what's going on? I mean, materially, we're doing so much better. You know, we have so many more objects that are supposedly there to make us happy. So what's going on? Yeah, I I, I think that you know, social media is wonderful for some things, yeah. but I think there's a co- strong correlation between excessive use of so- social media and envy of what's going on in this digisphere that is really a movie making. It's an illusion. Yeah. And people are getting really, particularly young people, you know, think mm-hmm. that, in, in my view, I work with a lot of young adults as yeah. well, and I see that they're, they're rudderless. Like, you know? Yeah. They know what they should be doing, but what they should be doing is not what they want to be doing. And they have not discovered this pilot light that they have inside of them. Let me interview you for a second. Okay, do it. (laughs) Um, Well, you're incredibly smart in this area and you've done over 500 podcasts. So what do you think should be done for these, these college students? What's going on? What would you do to help? Oh, I think we need to love them more. Okay. I think the, the demonstrative love that many of us, we may get it in our Mm -hmm. families of origins. Many of us don't get healthy models Mm -hmm. for love and relationship. Mm -hmm. What do they get? 
they get busy parents who busy are like parent. way, way busy and involved in too many things or... Uh, or helicopter thoughts. parenting yeah, or helicopter. absentee parenting yeah. or aggressive and abusive parenting. Now it's almost become drone parenting, you know, in the sense that, okay, I'm not going to be there, but I'm going to follow you up. Oh, right. Then I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to watch you. I'm going to watch your dot exactly. <laughs> on your phone. Right. I know I'm guilty of that with my own children, okay. you know, okay. I mean, not, I mean, not yeah, for sure. safety, not because yeah, I right. want to keep, sure. my, my kids are now in college, mm -hmm. but yeah, but I think that the love, I think that e even bringing the L word into yeah. campuses or into businesses yeah. because it's considered inappropriate. It's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. I have a friend, Samantha Thomas, who runs this love conference. And it's incredible. And, and she invited me to speak in it. And I thought, yes, I you should conference. go. Well, it was just, I did. Yeah. And it was really a transforming experience. I love that idea of saying, well, maybe, you know, because you think, is there anything higher than having a purpose? And it may well be love, which I have. I'm, I'm, I even told Samantha, I, I haven't gone there yet. I mean, sure, I know love through some things, but I haven't gone there in terms of my rapt attention to what does love mean? Uh, how do people use and view love? When we say, oh, I love that thing. That's so different than other countries that may have a different word other than love for I love this cup of coffee. Yes. You know, they would never say that in Spain or somewhere else. And because there'd be another word for love of coffee versus love of you. <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Yes. But we've kind of conflated love into... Into like, romance. Like, yeah. like, it's like yeah. or romance. Right, exactly. But with, with the kind of love that I'm talking about is, you know, what Carl Rogers called, you know, unconditional yeah. positive regard, where uh, you love the other person simply because they are. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And when we give that to our students and our coworkers and our and our colleagues, I think that changes You're the world. Providing that type of yeah. love, offering that type of yeah. love is maybe a solution. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a theory. Maybe one I'll have to pursue. Well, we don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, you talk about areas of research and you might say, I'm in school of public health, and you know, so many of my colleagues might say, Well, I study smoking, or I study diet, or I study blood pressure, or I study stress or whatever. And <laughs> those things are fine. And stress is, you know, more real now. And in the early eighties and late seventies, I was studying stress. And I remember people saying, Well, that's so amorphous, that's so fuzzy, you know. Really? It's so mushy. It well, back then, yeah, it doesn't seem and, it doesn't we, actually seem mushy. No, and then <laughs> we were finding that people with a lot of stress were much more likely to die and get mm. sick, and then they'd kind of open their eyes really well how about the measures well here's some measures and you know people you know it may vary in different people but but people were always afraid to get scientists were always afraid to get into things that had that kind of mush now i've just gone way over the deep end you know now we're talking about self-transcending purpose in your life yeah. really well yeah you can measure it and when you do measure it and follow people and statistically control for everything you might do for a cigarette smoker versus non-smoker, like age and gender and income and education and race and their their health status and their lifestyle factors, and you control for all those, and you still find you can't make purpose go away. It still comes out as this unbelievably powerful predictor of your future well-being, your physical health, and even your life, yeah. and your DNA repair and other things. You go, wow, something is there. And let's not ignore it. If we ignore it, then we are not scientists. Yes. And, but I think that purpose and love are tied together. And so imagine that next frontier. Yes. Love. Love. Imagine if that were studied in this same way. And people, of Clini course, cl Clinical you know, research. Yeah. yeah. How, well, how do you measure it? Well, I, that's not my area. <laughs> but it's the sort of thing that maybe in my next you know, chapter of my life. Yeah, because yeah. I've talked with Samantha Thomas about this and, you know, this idea of being brave enough to say, we're going to have a whole conference about love. love. <laughs> That's amazing. And never talk romance. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, yes, it's an aspect. Yeah. but the, uh, It's the, an aspect. But the idea of, of love, like when you love right. your students, your students right. feel that love. That's communicated energetically by the way you look at them, your body language, the way that you mentor them. Hopefully. And, you know, not always, but, but that's, that is my purpose and trying to do that. It's like a goal. I might want to set a goal that's really a difficult goal. I know I'm not going to reach that goal completely. But having a goal works much better than saying oh, I'm going to do my best. And there's like 
lots of research showing. Well, how do we show up, right? Isn't that part of how what, do how up? do we show up? Yeah. Oh, wow, nice term. I just heard that yesterday yeah. by somebody else saying, yeah, purpose is like showing up. Yeah, how right. do you show up for your own life? Yeah, right. Do you uh, show up sort of in a disorganized way, whatever, you know? How, what, how, am how, I sleepwalking? Am I calling, yeah. yes. it in? It's like yeah. phoning in your life. You know, the one thing that Julia taught me is that our lives are very finite. You know, that's one thing death does. Salience of death, thinking more about death, which is what Buddhists do in their meditation. I think it's, it's a good amazing. thing. This We avoid it like the plague. In so America, we do, we do not talk about it. We, we do not talk about it. We don't it. go to movies that have some good guy actually really dying. Oh, they always come back at the end. Amazing. You know, um, <laughs> it's silly because we don't want to contemplate that. You know, Nicole Kidman can be in some superhero movie and it'll make zillions of dollars. She goes into a movie where their child dies. It makes no no money. Hmm. You know, good for Nicole Kidman, though. Brave Nicole Kidman for saying, I'm going to still do that movie because that's a powerful, important thing to think about. When you have, uh, I mean, our daughter taught us every single day while she was alive that life is unbelievably important day to day. It's actually not new either. The Stoics did this. Have you interviewed anyone who's like into Stoic philosophy? Into- no, but I remember when I was in high school, I had yeah. to I had to write a big paper on Zeno and the Stoics, and that's the last time I've ever discussed it. <laughs> Seneca would, you know, talk about this. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, one of yes. the greatest ancient Roman emperors, yes. uh, wrote this amazing book, one of the most modern books I've ever read, actually called Meditations. It's about 130 pages, unbelievable, but. You know, they would wake up in the morning, and one of their practices was to say, I'm going to die today. Now, imagine that as a stoic practice. Like, what if we did that? You know, I wake up, and and I say to my wife, I'm going to die today. She'd go, would you stop it? Every day you come home, maybe, unfortunately, you know, eat your granola. And uh, I'd go, no, I'm going to die today. Why do you say that all the time? Because if I think I may die, I'm going to live the biggest life I can today. And so I'm assuming death. And I remember talking to a, a guy named Tenzin Piridashi, who's the um, director of the uh, Dalai Lama MIT uh, Leadership Institute. And I remember we were going up a gondola one time. We were in, a few years ago, it was in Vail, Colorado. And for some reason, they had asked Tenzin and I to give some talk at the top of this mountain, Vail Mountain. And wow. talk about how intense. I mean, it was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. He's got his saffron robes on and of course flowing and I've got my Don't Fear the Reaper t shirt. And I'm like a five year old kid talking to his ten year old brother. It's like, so Tenzin, do you uh, meditate? <laughs> it's like, I have a truck. You know, I meditate. And he goes, You know, I meditate. And I'm so unevolved. And, and I, I'm asking him, you know, so do you have a mantra? I have a mantra. It's like, yeah, I have a big truck. And and he's going, yeah, I, I do have mantras, but I, I do other things when I'm meditating too. Like when you know, I meditate for 20 minutes, once or twice a day. And he goes, yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, I was starting to meditate at four o'clock this morning. I said, oh, how, how long do you meditate? Oh, about two hours or so. And what was your meditation about? And he said, well, it was on my own death. I said, oh. He said, well, it gets worse, Vic. I will soon meditate on my own decomposition. The, the idea, I think, is that you're starting to think, the more you're, you're bringing the awareness that you are here and very finite, the bigger the life you end up living. And the more you remove the extraneous crap from your life do you really want to be sitting there watching what kim kardashian is doing or wearing or whatever when you have so much more that you can be doing in your life and that's what julia taught me here comes the pause we'll be right back and that is a guarantee who says money can't buy happiness whether you are a skeptic or seeker check out lisa's new book are we happy yet eight keys to unlocking a joyful life a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness 
how to find it and keep it with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back to continue our conversation about what it means to be purposeful, how when we apply ourselves to what matters most, we succeed, we flourish, and thrive. This episode is part of the Positive Business Conference series that was originally recorded at the University of Michigan Ross School of Business. Let's get back to our chat. All right, let's get on with it because we want to talk about leadership. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so interested in, you know, first of all, Remember Viktor Frankl? I, yes, Went I do. Went through three concentration camps, lost his family. He found that the people in concentration camps tended to, who, who survived, if they weren't murdered outright, if they survived, they had to have a pretty strong purpose in, in their lives and transcending purpose. The people who lost their purpose, he said, woe to those who found no meaning, no purpose in their lives. They were soon lost. Yes. And then he came out of the concentration camps and he was asked, what's your purpose now? And he said, to help the world build greater purpose. I guess that's pretty similar to my own purpose. And so I'm a researcher, but I also build apps for people. I build applications for health to help you manage stress or to eat better or do whatever. And I've, I've, we've transferred a lot of our research into a a company that did that. And now I've created this new company called Kimono, which is really intended to help um, employees find greater purpose and meaning in their work and their life and help build more purposeful organizations. And you could ask why employees. Well, that's where most people spend most of their waking hours at work. So let's start with whether you can find meaning at work. And people are increasingly working more hours. They're devoting more of their souls to what they're doing at work. Now, increase. I know when I first started my job, I didn't go in and say, how is my job going to make me happy? I didn't ask, how is my job going to make me more purposeful? <laughs> I, I said, I guess I have to find those things. I didn't, wasn't even thinking about them. But now increasingly, people are coming out of universities going, how is this job going to make me happier and more purposeful? So how do you build more purposeful organizations? And I would say there's many dimensions of it. You know, there's purposeful leadership. There's having mission-driven companies, very purpose-driven companies that extend beyond revenue as a purpose that end up making more revenue, which is amazing. They create greater value. But I believe personally that you need to start with employees and where they are. And it's been kind of a general adage, oh, okay, if great leaders just get everybody completely connected with the purpose of the company, they're going to, you know, that's it. You know, you get everybody following you over the hill. We've done a lot of research at Kumano. We, we have over 19,000 people's purposes, and we analyze their purposes at work. So we ask people, what's your work purpose? Yeah, Do you yeah. have one? And we encourage, you know, we have a whole composition engine online where you can put that in. And we are now actually using machine learning and artificial intelligence to create categories of different purposes that people have. And we found six different purposes people have. Some are company people, but that's in our book of business, 15% of people. Of oh, the true company yeah. man or now, woman. If you work with certain groups, Navy SEALs probably have a serious, you know, company or organizational mission and purpose. Most all of them probably do. They need to. Yes. And, and well, this is off yeah. topic for a second, but when yeah. you when you have a service man or woman that is taken out, uh, no longer in service and has no mission, it's a recipe for disaster. For PTSD. Yeah. If they can repurpose their lives, yes. they're more likely to develop post-traumatic growth. Yes. So, yeah, we find other people, though, who uh, their purpose is to make money to support their families. Fine. I, I ask, I'm very annoying. When I'm in a cab, I ask every cab driver, Uber driver, Lyft driver, what's your purpose? Do you have a purpose in life? And almost all of them do. Of course. Very often, though, it's I work. I came from this other country. I work 12 hours a day, five, six days a week so that my daughter or son will be the first person to get out of to, to graduate from college. 
and they just did, and they're going to med school now, or they're going into engineering, they're going to whatever. I go, what an awesome purpose. That's just great. Yeah. So that's, that's a very legit purpose for people. Other purposes are I'm here for my team. Maybe not the overall company, but I'm here for my team. So, so many people work in large corporations where the mission of the company may not be the most salient thing. But if you have a mission within your team, we're going to build the best whatever widget yeah. imaginable. That's kind of an awesome purpose. And I'm going to support my team so they all grow and get really great. Then there may be personal growth purposes. Then there are transcending purposes. Like I'm here. We, we have some companies who have a lot of amazing um, people in who say, I'm here to build products that make people better off, to improve the quality of yeah. people's lives. They almost don't care which company they're working for as long as they can do that. And so then what we find is that they have very different values. Oh, we find achievers too. I'm here to climb the ladder. They tend to be younger people. They don't have responsibility is not their number one value. Yeah. It's usually like the last. <laughs> the title. <laughs> yeah. But achievement, learning, expertise, those are huge. But also they lack sleep. They have horrible work-life balance. They have huge stressors in their lives where other people may have less stress in their lives, but have different needs. And so we want to, at Kumano, what we do is find what those different typologies, those identities of purpose are. And then we start there and we work with that person. Knowing something about why they're working is super helpful. And then yeah. helping managers, not at the individual level, you know, we don't give individual data back, but saying, you know what, only 15% of your people are totally attached to your company's mission. Now, you may build that up to 20%, but let's start with where your employees are and then help figure out what you want to do in organize a, organizing those employees so that you become a purposeful company. I want to ask you a question. You mentioned the words work-life balance. Yeah. And the more people that I speak to and the longer that I do what I do, I realize that that's almost a fallacy in the yeah. sense that it's all life. Yeah. And if we're out of balance in one area, it's life is out of balance. And that when there's a lack of congruency, yeah. you know, in the way we show up, I mean, if yeah. we show up one way at the office and one way at home, that we're not necessarily being authentic. Yeah. It, well, it's such a great point. And I hear a lot of people starting to talk in that way. Yeah. I won't name names, but, you know, people who are very, very bright people say, no, I hate work-life balance. This is not about balancing. And I, I don't have balance and I don't care about the balance. Okay. couple points. They're probably right in some ways. Also, many of those people who say it are total workaholics and are way out of balance themselves, I must say. Well, then that's self-medicating. Yes. If one is a workaholic, yeah. then one is self-medicating to not feel other aspects many of people, life. Many people, I'm guessing on your podcast, in fact, many well-known yes. speakers <laughs> or have written a lot of books, have horrible work-life balance, yes. often on their you know third marriage. Not to say that's a, you know, I'm not being too disparaging, but is that the right way to go? And um, and their kids might not talk to them anymore. You know, in other words, they have crap lives. Well, I'd say that is a problem of work-life balance. So yes. I'm going to push back a little bit on these people saying, oh, I hate work-life balance. That's because your life is all about work. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a great thing because... Uh, there is a fair amount of data showing that those people do indeed burn out. Not everyone, but many people do. And have more health challenges, yeah, ultimately. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I like the pushback because I, I hear what you're saying. And I also think like, well, if we're not showing up in congruence, you know, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. You know, But at the same time, you know, when you're home and then you are... Uh, you have 200 more email messages, and then you say, all I want is an old-fashioned or a glass of wine, and I'm going to go through these emails. And then your partner or spouse comes up to you and goes, you're not even here. And you go, I am too here. I'm not at work. Yeah. No, you're not here. Yeah, you're not You're not, you're not, you're not with yeah. me. You're not with the kids. Then you do have to take a breath and go, you know what? You're right. And then the first reaction is often, well, I don't have time. Well, you have five more hours, actually, but you're probably exhausted. So how do you build energy? 
And that's, I'm really into helping people find the energy to be balanced. So you get home and you still say, you know what, what, what can I do now other than having that old fashioned right away? Maybe I can walk around the block with my spouse or play with the kids, yes. um, even just play ping pong or something, do something to kind of reactivate the body to get back. And I'm in public health, so I'm really into the those kind of health behavior aspects. I can have a diet that's a glycemic load control diet that will keep me awake in the evening. I can meditate in different times of the day that wake me up again and give me more energy and focus for yes. my partner. So I don't have to say there's no work-life balance. I can, in fact, say I have to have a strong home life, family life, life life, yes. in addition to my work. And because I have different dimensions of purpose, we all have purposes that sometimes conflict. The way to get rid of that sometimes by some people is to connect the two closely, but often you can't do that. Give me a break. <laughs> but what about the self-care angle here? Because what I really hear you saying is that self-care yes. is the way that we achieve this balance. And if that's not valued in our workplace... Yeah. I like to use this term that I, I use in my book called space, sleep, presence or mindfulness, activity, physical activity, creativity. How can I be creative yes. and eating well? Yes. If I have space in my life, and I think about that every day, did I give myself space? And so sleep, presence, activity, creativity, and eating. And people, by the way, respond differently to those different things we've found. But once you become kind of your own researcher, you can become expert on man, I realized I need to sleep better. Or when I meditate, I am so focused and attentive and my home purpose does so much better. I'm so purposeful now with my spouse, loving that. And there's, har and there's harmony in the household and harmony at, at the yeah. workplace and life just runs more smoothly. And then your, your work life becomes a little more doable so you don't have the stressors. I have a good CEO friend who said, I don't care who, big company, so I don't care who they are. If you've had a divorce, a good divorce, a bad divorce, <laughs> you're gone for six months. I mean, I just view your productivity as being gone for six months. I don't care who you are. And, you know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But, you know, the idea of maintaining a strong home life, whatever that kind of life is, to most people at many stages of their life is very important. And so the yes. people who are deniers of that, I think... You know, I just push back a little bit on that. Going back to young people who are entering the workforce, yeah. you know, and talking about how to mentor them yeah. to, you know, because they're like sponges, right? They're yeah. coming into the beginning of their professional lives and encouraging them to tend the flame of their souls. One of the cool things about young people, they're often now asking me, how do I find purpose in my life? I like to go back to Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote this book that is really dense called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The cool part of that book is up front, he had this beautiful metaphor. And the metaphor starts with a camel. And the camel says, load everything on my back. Load the, the sorrows, load the pain, but also load the joys and the love of the world. In other words, teach me. And teach me not in ways just that I can learn in a class, but in other words, take a gap year or two. <laughs> you yeah. know, learn about the real world. Don't just go to Paris or London or San Francisco. Go to parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Go, go to volunteer India. somewhere. Go to India like Steve Jobs did or Larry Brilliant did. Or go to places that will change your life and teach you not about fear but about love and connectedness and the things that people where people have almost nothing how much they value every day in their life so become this camel once you've loaded everything up in this metaphor the camel transforms into a lion the lion then is educated goes out into the wilderness seeks out this dragon this is an amazing metaphor on every scale of the dragon are the words thou shalt so the dragon represents institutions, religious institutions, thou shalt do this, yes. or government institutions, thou shalt believe in this, or your family even, thou shalt become a doctor, thou shalt do this. Yeah. Um, and the lion slays the dragon, <laughs> tears up the parent's resume for them. The lion basically goes then and transforms one last time into a child. The child is innocent, 
but also fully understanding that that person needs to create their own purpose in life, not something that's been, you know, given to them by somebody else. That person is a truly free person. So here's my thought. Students are camels. They're not lions yet. Yeah. I want them to become fully educated. So I tell my students, take a gap year or two, leave here. When you graduate, don't go right to med school. Don't go right to business school. I, some of the most interesting people I've ever met in business, in medicine, in public health, in anywhere, are people who ended up volunteering, did, went to the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps, did something that's awesome, and came back a changed person. They are now transforming into lions. Then they go into grad school, business school, med school, into workaday world with stories, with cool with with a new knowledge, they're lions, and they go. I'm building my own purpose now. Yeah, sounds very much uh, like Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. It is the hero's journey. In fact, Joseph Campbell used to talk about this Nietzschean metaphor. Yes, yes, and and one of his quotes, and I'm paraphrasing, is that you know we must follow our bliss. For when we follow our bliss, doors will open for us where there had once been walls. I really believe that. You know, what you have to find out is what you're good at. And that's a really hard thing, forcing yourself to, you know, it's really great, by the way, to take on classes that, you're don't, that you don't think you're good at. Work hard to build your toolkit because yeah. your life, I'm talking to students here on your podcast or young people, your life will bounce around in such unexpected ways. Even old is, people. Oh, this, is, this is medicine for us oldsters. <laughs> yeah, your life will bounce around. Yeah. My life bounced around with, the, you know, uh, uh, with my daughter. So you don't know where you're going to go. Build a toolkit so that you can become more resilient. You can, like, move and shift with the changing yes. tides of chaos, which is how we have to live our lives. The, the chaos happens. Um, but especially for these young people, view education as the ability to collect this toolkit not to just go down one path. So many people who are just following that one path, usually they end up being in the point zero zero one percentile who makes it there. Very often they're very unhappy people. Yeah. Very. Vic, this has been incredible. I encourage our listeners to reach out and buy Life on Purpose, How Living for What Matters Most Changes Everything. To learn more about Vic Strecker and his work, please visit kumanu.com. That's K-U-M-A-N-U.com. And Kumanu Life on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. Thank you, Vic. Thanks so much, Lisa. This is so much fun. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest, Vic Streaker, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.